Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Hello, beautiful listeners. It's your host, Tembi Locke. Welcome to Lifted, a podcast that pulls back the curtain on creativity, resilience, and the extraordinary moments when everything changes. Marguerite McIntyre is an actress, writer, producer, and now showrunner with a career spanning over two decades. As an actress, she became known for her long-running role as Liz Forbes on The Vampire Diaries. She has since brought her writing and acting talent to shows like Casual, Little Fires Everywhere, The Originals, and of course, From Scratch, Vampire Academy, a show she co-created with Julie Pleck and now show runs, is currently streaming on Peacock. Marguerite and I first met in the writer's room of From Scratch, where I was drawn to her keen intellect, warm heart, and her facility with dual art forms, acting and writing. She wrote the powerful episode in which Amy and Lino say goodbye. Marguerite is the real deal, a wise soul, and the kind of friend you learn something new from every time you meet. Marguerite McIntyre, welcome to the Lifted Podcast. Thank you, Tandy Locke. <laughs> that was very formal of us. I know. As people who have like been in the trenches and know all each other's stuff. I know. I'm so happy to have you here and to talk and to like share with you and learn from you because you're a teacher in my life. You don't know this. I don't know that I've ever articulated it in that way. I probably have like fangirled and asked you at different times, could you teach me this? Or like, can I observe that? You know, but you are truly, truly a teacher. And I learned so much by watching how you move through the world, your intellect, engaging with you, collaborating with you. It's just a joy. Oh my gosh. This is already the best day ever. <laughs> well, it's so I mean, true. for a teacher to say someone has taught them is always great because I think that's how you roll through the world. A hundred percent. Oh my gosh. Well, I want to start, I think for, especially for those listening with really knowing kind of how you have come into your own as an artist, which is, I know that you have this background in theater. You've got this background as an actress then you've got this background as a writer. Now you're an executive producer. I think there's dance in there as well. I Only mean, when forced. Okay. Well, <laughs> what I'm saying is like this smacks to me of, and by the way, let me also add, I don't know that from the outset, you had a, an intention that would lead to the where you are now. I think you were like, no. I kind of like singing and dancing and acting and let's yeah. see where this goes. And now yeah. here you are, you know, executive producing, writing at an incredibly high level. So- Talk to me about young Marguerite. 
you know, the early sort of artistic inclinations that you might have had, were they present in childhood? Was that something you gave yourself permission to do later? It's so funny. Like I was one of those people who I still get a little like when people say, talk about themselves as an artist. And I think it's exactly correct. And we should all be talking about ourselves as artists. I, however, am like an average bear from Detroit, Michigan, who finds that highfalutin artist talk kind of a little funny. So I wasn't somebody who could say I'm on the artist's journey. I'm on this path. I was always like, I'm in whatever moment I'm in and I follow the flow. But when I was little, I mean, there was a lot of like kind of trauma in my house, but there was also a lot of great things, which was, there was a big sense of humor, thank God. And there were books there was music. And so I, I always sang, I played an instrument, I read. I was a very early, early reader because I had an older sister and brother who were reading, like they were six years older than me. So I was like four and started reading. We had weirdly all these copies of like Shakespeare plays around the house. And I was like, what is this weird, cool language? So it never was daunting to me. So I would read all that. And I would read these books that I had no business reading because I was like, what's that book? And I didn't know what I was reading. And like so I what? always like, give me oh, an example. Well, besides Shakespeare would be like adult books. Like it would be like a tale of two cities when I was okay. like, you know, seven and being like, what's a tumbrel? And just have it, like, I don't know what I'm reading. I don't understand any context, but it was so fascinating to me. I think always there was a life of literature, of music, of, I wish that I could draw and do things like that. I couldn't, my dad could, my sister could do that. But I mean, that was always kind of intrinsic. And I think I always sang and just loved to sing. And so I, I think I just was always artsy in my way, <laughs> you know, just doing that yeah, stuff. If you may, if you want to chat about it, I think a lot of people the trauma and expression sit side by side, right? Yeah. Like for creative people. Yes. And so to the degree that you can talk about the kinds of things that you experienced, was it like in the family that made art the escape? You know? Yes, I think it was a combo bladder. Actually, now that I'm older and I can see the bigger picture, given who my parents were as humans, like I think we were sort of artistically inclined people. They never really pursued much along those lines, but that was in us. Then that trauma brings out and you're like, holy shlamoli, I gotta, I gotta do something here. And so you do, you escape to a world of a book or a world of your imagination or a world of playing guitar for 17 hours on the porch or whatever you can do to get peace and get sort of out of whatever is going on that's tough. So yeah, it does kind of sit side by side. And I think it's, you know, it's healing and it's any kind of expression is always great because you are not just sitting on all the things. It's healing under any circumstances, but especially if you have some higher level trauma going on, it's, it's pretty wonderful as therapy. So <laughs> in your early professional endeavors, right? Mm -hmm. So girl from Detroit, who's got that like Midwest work ethic. I'm just going to come in under the radar. I'm going to get it done. I'm going to get it done ahead of time. I'm going to get it done. Well, <laughs> you know, you, put that my is head you. down, put my, no, head keep down. my head down. No, that is just you keep pushing. And, yeah. and keep pushing and in a very unassuming way. And there's a kind of beautiful quality that to me is that American ideal, right. That people sort of like hold out as if, but you're it, like you're the thing. <laughs> Okay. Other people talk it, but you're like the thing, like you keep your head down, you deliver the goods. It's going to be amazing. I always feel like I'm like water on a rock. 
Mm. You know what I mean? I just just keep dripping and dripping and dripping. And that's how the Grand Canyon gets made. You just got to go a drip at a time. And it's just a bummer because you wish you could go big flood and get some big, beautiful cavern, but you can't. You just have to keep like water on a rock and another drip and another drip. And that's just what it is. That's life. And if you can get cool with it, then you can have some fun with that too. Instead of just being in a race that you can't control. Okay. That is such a beautiful philosophy for how to live life. It's just like moment to moment, truly moment to moment, bit by bit, keep the long trajectory in mind, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And don't worry about the instant gratification. No, because it's going to not really often be there. So (laughs) you'll just disappoint yourself. Let's talk a little bit about starting out as an actor because yeah. nothing like starting out as an actor oh, hitting the pavement every day with the sides oh. and the audition oh. and the call. That will teach you to be water on a rock. And I have to say, I for me, that I know that to be true. Well, because that's why people drop out. Like it starts out like, you know, all the people you started auditioning with the first year you were auditioning with by year two, half of them are gone. Cause they're like, this blows, like, this is terrible. And of course it does. And of course, when I was doing it as like an old, old woman, we were like running around, picking up sides that there wasn't even like, we didn't even have faxes. Like the, the kind of running around that we did just to do auditions in New York and LA didn't matter where you were. It was Okay. Not so. I want to just take two seconds and explain <laughs> to the listener what exactly we're talking about. Exactly. I'm going to take you back to the time when I first showed up in the city of Los Angeles, city of angels with the Hollywood sign in the distance and the mm-hmm. sunset and all the good stuff. Right. And I'm like, I am going to make it as an actress. Well, you get a call, by the way, not even pagers and some listeners will not know the word I'm about to use, but beepers. Beepers. There wasn't even beepers. a beeper, which mm-hmm. Google it. You'll figure out what that is. Anyway, the point is you would get a call and you'd oh. go around town and you'd use a payphone and you'd call, check into the voice service. It was a third party that you paid to capture your messages because yes. you were out in the world and there were you no were never phones. there. You're, so, yeah, you you would get the message that would say, ah, oh, you haven't, you know, like your agents, like you have an audition and it's for this and it's tomorrow at 10 a.m. and you're getting this at 5 p.m., right? Yes. And so then you're like, wherever you are in the city of angels, you stop what you're doing. Yes. You get in a car. And by the way, you don't have Google Maps. No, you, you have, don't. You have the you, Thomas guy. You have the Thomas guy, which is a printed Bible, like a tome of like all the streets of LA. And you flip to where you need to go. And then you drive and you go pick up another piece of paper that has the material, the sides, the script, the scene Mm -hmm. that you have to audition with the next day. And then you read the Thomas Guide again to figure out where that audition is. And you did this day after day after day. And the Thomas Guide was actually invented by someone who wanted to make you crazy because everything about that Thomas Guide was like, you get to the end of a, like, you're like, I just need to get the 3,900 Lancashire. And it would be like, you have to go to 600 different pages to get to. 30, and you'd be like, I'm in my car. You can't do it. Like it was crazy. And you know, crazy. and sometimes I would do that and I would drive and I'd pick up the sides and it was evident to me like within an instant. And I would say, this is not for me. No, I know. I know. I know. I know. I know. Like, I have brown eyes and I'm five foot five and I was born in Texas. I'm not going to get this part. I know. And yet you're Asian. You got to do it all. You got to do, do it. it. And so this yeah. is the water on a rock that water I'm talking about. 
This is the thing where as an actor early on, I think you and I come from that time and we were trained in a way that you show up, you give it your all, you give it your best, even with the knowledge that this might not be for you, but maybe you'll meet a casting director that is like, we'll remember you for the next thing. Or you might use that audition as a time to like play and discover. And you're like, oh, trying to, I remember trying on weird accents just because I was like, I'm never going to get this part. I'm just going to use this to try on like my, I don't know, Jamaican accent. Like I, I do not have a Jamaican accent. But I was like, I better try now. So this approach to living, well, actually an approach to our work, right? I think translates to a philosophy of living, which is kind of what you were saying is like, Mm -hmm. hold in mind, I've set forth the intention that I really want to pursue this endeavor, this art, right? I want to do this. It feels right to me. It lifts me. It excites me. But you're going to have shit sandwiches anyway, right? Exactly. Like, so why don't you just have a shit sandwich in the service of like the filet mignon or whatever it is you're craving? Like you want shit sandwich in the service of slightly better shit sandwich? Or do you want <laughs> shit sandwich in the service of maybe you get those peak moments like our room on from scratch where I would have paid you guys to be in that room. Mm. Like that was such a peak moment of beautiful creativity and communal creativity and all that stuff. Right. So that's the thing where you're like, well, what's it worth to you? And to say at the beginning, you were like, you didn't have an agenda to sort of be where you are right now. And that is true in the specific, but not in the general. In the general, I think my goal was to live a creative life and to be in the arts and be creative. And as long as I didn't always know what I was going to be doing for the next six months, I would be pretty good. It's a peripatetic lifestyle it's hard you don't know where your money's coming from it's always a big like oh but if you're willing to kind of you know take a stab at it it did give me what I wanted which was I'm alive in it I'm not sleepwalking through my life or butting against the traces wishing I were somewhere else if I'm eating my shit sandwich it's a shit sandwich that is of my own making that I can control to the degree that I can control and that I'm at least Like you said, I might try on an accent. I might do a thing. I might meet somebody that I just genuinely like and somehow it turns into work or turns into a friendship. Anything can happen on those journeys to the stuff that isn't the thing that you want, but it's all in the service of a goal of what your global life will be, or it was for me. So that's why I keep following the path. Like I wrote always when I was really young, probably the first thing I ever thought I would be would be a writer. So I think it's interesting that after all, you know, being in musical theater and then in acting and then in this and then that, and finally, like, it's the thing that I'm doing the most right now. I also think being, you know, having lived some life is not a terrible thing as a training to be a better writer. Thank you for that share. And I love this notion of sort of the global calling the global mandate within right which Mm -hmm. is like to live this this creative life and however it flows and that you always wrote even earlier I mean you and I share that Mm -hmm. I wrote quietly privately for myself with no absolutely zero intention of it being a professional endeavor at all yeah and I think it took as you just said a lot of living before I could come into that voice creatively right Mm -hmm, for me mm -hmm. that was very important and so can you talk to us about that inflection point or that turning point for yourself is it a moment or was it an accumulation of events when you were like oh who first said to you hey marguerite you want to write something and you were like yes that's really interesting this is where women and friendship comes into my life in a huge way because I mean I have great friendships with men and women but my female friendships are just so 
huge and deep to me. And I care so deeply about these people in my life. And you know, some of the people I'm talking about, and you are one of the people I'm talking about as is Miss Attica. But I had started as an actor in New York and was working in theater. And I ended up coming to LA, not for work, as a matter of fact, weirdly, I came for a ultimately doomed relationship, <laughs> but you know, like you got to stick the landing, see if it's going to work out. Um, so I, you know, I came out here and I was like, Oh, this is really, isn't it? But I started working a lot here and going back and forth and eventually was kind of here in LA more than I was in New York. And I never really thought I would leave New York. And I, I did that thing. I just followed the path. Did you keep the subletting? I did for so long. I, I did, did for so I long, but I gave it, oh too. man, I did. And then finally I felt selfish because when I was subletting it out to other people, I was like, okay, this is good. But then I just felt like there's a point where somebody needs to make that their home because it was a nice place. Like for me, a nice place. I mean, it probably wasn't very fancy, but it was like a building I loved on the Upper West Side. Everything was there. It was wonderful. I had so many friends in the building. But anyway, I finally was like, this is just unfair. Somebody needs this lease. And so I was like, okay, I'm not going to be moving back there anytime soon enough for this to matter. So I gave it up and it was like, Oh, that was a little bit of heartbreak, but I did. And then I was here, but all my friends in New York were actors and New York actors are, you know, fabulous goofball weirdo people who I adore deeply. And the energy is a certain kind of a like wild, fun, free, let's do this thing kind of fast, crazy, wonderful energy that I just loved and funny, a lot of funny. And then when I moved to LA, I was a little, you know, I was like, uh, there was a lot of like people who were, you know, I don't know, I had thigh flesh and a sense of humor and was, I just felt like very different from a lot of people I was in rooms with. And especially like they would type you so hard then. So you'd walk into a room and you'd see kind of the better version of yourself. Like, <laughs> be like, oh, that's really what they're looking for. And I'm like, the girl from Michigan version, which is not what they're looking for. Although I worked a lot. So it was kind of, I got very lucky and just little by little, I realized like everybody that I was like buddies with was like writer, 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 writer. And I didn't really have a lot of actor friends. And I was like, this is so weird. When I go back to New York, I'm hanging out with my pals, all actors. I come back here. It's all writers. Writers sniff out other writers, right? They just know. And so I was my friend, Liz Tigalar, who is a wonderful, very like, I mean, magical, terribly accomplished, fancy, fancy writer, but also very grounded and groovy, who was like, you're kind of a writer, aren't you? And I was like, well, and she basically said, there's a book that she had written, a YA book that eventually it went on Hulu, but it was a couple companies were making a web series out of it. And she's like, you know, why don't you just throw me something? Cause they want me to find somebody to adapt this. And I'm going to get a few people and put them in the mix and whatever. And I said, okay. So I sent her this thing. She's like, oh my God. Okay, done. And so I got that job. That was the first writer job I got, which was adapting a book of hers. And while that was happening, I'd also been writing. I hadn't been a big TV person or in some ways a movie person. I was always really theatery person, great TV, but like not high volume TV. I'd watch The Sopranos and I'd watch anything deeply funny. I am not one of those people who knows every TV show that's ever existed and has all that. And in some ways that's probably good because I'm not trading on the tropes or, or if I am, I'm doing it innocently. <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, oh, I have this opening here. I do like long form storytelling. Maybe I should try and, and write a pilot. So I wrote a pilot and it actually got bought. It, all these things happened. It seemed like it was going to become actually a series. And then these two entities that were trying to make a deal with each other. And you know, this from the business side of it yes, could not come to terms. And when that was happening, I got offered my first writer's room job by Julie Plack 
to do the originals, which was a spinoff of the Vampire Diaries, which I was acting on. So she had said at one point when she realized I was writing and she had read this pilot, she was like, whoa, okay, do you want to write on Vampire Diaries? And I was like, no, I don't understand it. It's all crazy. But I said, originals, I like. I like the originals. Let's do that. So you had the fortune of being friends with Julie Pleck. Yes. With Liz Tiglar. And by the way, they had the fortune of being friends with you. And that, <laughs> right? But that was through work. I met them both through work. And Got interestingly. It. Work as right. an actor? I met Julie the day I walked in to audition for a show called Kyle XY. And I ended up doing that show and we became friends on that show. That's the show that she jumped from being producer to a writer and showrunner on. And then Liz had randomly worked on that show for like five minutes until she jumped onto something else. But because of that, through another friend, they said, oh, my friend is working on the same show you're working on, got us together. And then we were like best buddies from then. So that was extraordinary. extraordinary. That's why I'm saying these women are like everything to me, right? To That's me, what right? I was going to say. Yeah. And that what I'm hearing from you also, some people will know that there is a kind of like a, I was always taught there's this sort of hierarchy, like on set, like when you're the guest cast or you're the guest actor who's on the set, don't talk to the producers, you know, like say, like there's this sort of hard line between the writers and the producers and the actors. And it sounds like you were like, I don't believe in any of that hierarchy. Like you're a nice person and you would just talk and be friends with them and look well. Like I, that's so interesting that you say that because when I was first working as an actor in New York, I never really thought about that hierarchy. Cause you know, when you're working with a director, even when you're auditioning with some huge fancy director, as soon as you're actually working on a scene and not just doing a monologue or doing something, you're working and then I'm comfortable and then I'm fine and I don't have any nerves. And then on sets though, at first I felt like that too. I was like, even when I was a series regular on a couple of pilots and I'd be like, well, I shouldn't be talking. That's a fancy person who's doing whatever. I felt uncomfortable. I was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. It didn't understand set etiquette. And then I realized it doesn't matter and who cares and just don't be an idiot and probably it's all going to be fine. And that's very much the way to kind of go into it. Just, just read the room, just be yourself. Mm -hmm. Know when you're somebody's in the middle of some kind of firestorm, don't talk to them. Then if there's a beautiful opening, just be easy, be yourself. It'll all be right. fine. And both Liz and Julie are people who aren't the kind of people who are bound by hierarchies themselves. They're both people who are like, I've been in rooms with both of them and both of them have been my boss and Julie has been also my partner. And there is no, it's best idea wins. It doesn't feel like if you're a staff writer, you're less valuable than if you're a co-EP. It doesn't feel like, it just feels like we're all in it together, just trying to make something beautiful. And that makes this door feel really open to communication where you don't feel like the hierarchy and that scary thing. Like I should just be over sitting in my chair until somebody calls me, you know? I would posit that that is because they're women. I agree. Women in this business have uh, come to the table with less of that sense of hierarchy than many men do. I agree. Especially if you have the opportunity to move up through the ranks. I feel that in, you know. I agree. And I hope this is one of those things too, just generally in the business. And I keep saying this now, I'm trying to make it real, which is I hope as we all go forward and as women coming up, go forward, that we change the business to make it a more humane business. Right now, it's not fair to men or women, especially women who are of childbearing years and trying to have families. It's the hours are ridiculous. We've already changed the entire monetary infrastructure of what TV does is meant to achieve in terms of targets. 
So while that's all changing and since everything is up in the air, why don't we also make it more sane and make ours a little friendlier and make just like make it all like where you can live your life and do your work because it'll only improve both. Absolutely. So I think women will take the charge there. I co-sign on that a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And we certainly tried to the degree that we could as new showrunners, new producers to sort of the degree to which we had influence instill that, you know, yeah, certainly totally. when we had our writer's room and then yeah. to the degree that we put in production. I want to ask, is there a theme? And I know you write across many genres, meaning in television. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's the Vampire Diaries. We have Vampire Academy coming up, which mm-hmm. shout out, so excited. Shout out, um, September 15th. But then there's been casual. Is there a theme? Is there some piece of Marguerite that no matter what you were writing, no matter what show it is, no matter what that episode is about, if it lands in your lap and you're like, okay, I'm on this script, what is a piece of me that I want to put into this writing? That's this so interesting. Is there something? Because I can speak to it in terms of what I witnessed in working with you on From Scratch, but I don't know if that's true across the board. It might be easier for somebody outside to tell than from inside, because you know, you're doing a lot of things just from your own intrinsic selfness and maybe not thinking too hard about it. I do definitely, just on like, not even thematic levels. I mean, I think I always want a horrible moment to have humor in it. And I always want a humorous moment to have pathos in it or drama or whatever's going on. Because I don't think there really is such a thing as drama or comedy and all that. I mean, I like a good comedy and I like a good drama, but I want them all to have pieces of everything. You know, when you're lucky, you can write a scene where what's being said is not what's happening exactly. I mean, I like all of that. But for me, I'm really, really drawn to ensemble shows and ensemble pieces. I love ensemble stuff. And I think I like it because I just deeply love the interplay of what a bunch of different temperaments and weirdos bring to a scene and how they bounce off each other. And then community also for me feels like very much something I explore in that there is the ways that it builds you up and the ways that it lets you down and what you do as a result of it. Like, I feel like that definitely is something that is very interesting to me. And again, it goes to the big picture too, of back to the, here we all are, don't wreck it. Okay. So Carrie, my husband can do everything. I'm always like, I can spell and Carrie can do everything else because he can literally do anything, which is, you know, insane. He's good with his hands. He could build a house from scratch. You know, he's like Mm -hmm. that guy, Mm -hmm. but he listens to all these podcasts and there's all these fine home building things about green building and this kind of building and that kind of building. And all those guys are just as passionate about making something artistic and perfect as any of us are. And there is a movement within that called making a pretty good house. Let's make a pretty good house. Because what happens is when you take a house that exists and you're trying to redo it and make it perfectly green or perfectly this or perfectly that, you're using so many more resources than you need to. You're actually going in the opposite direction of what your stated goal is to sort of be kinder to the planet, to do this, to do that. If everybody just made a pretty good house, our carbon footprint would be already dropped by such a huge extent without it having to be perfect, not having to be perfect, striving. Listen, when I wrote episode seven of From Scratch, I did strive to be perfect. I never worked harder in my life because I just felt the honor and the onus of that, of telling that story. And I wanted that to be perfect. But mostly I'm, as much as I'm a perfectionist, I have to keep telling myself, I'm going to make it as good as I can make something. And then other people will come in and help us make it better. And we all do this together. And it is what it is. 
but I like the idea of that pretty good house. We're making a pretty good house here. Thank you for that. It resonates so much. There's an equivalent in parenting called it's good enough. Like I can't be the perfect parent today. I can be good enough. And tomorrow I'll meet myself where I am. I'll meet myself where my child is and it'll be good enough. And in a way, just like building a house, you're building up a human and like you can't do it perfectly. There is no perfect to it. And you'll spin out and it'll ruin your relationship with the child that you're trying to raise up. Tension, it'll be too much. It'll be too much. (laughs) Yeah. It'll be too much. And I, I think the other thing about what you just shared, going back to that sense of community, right? That idea of like, I'm gonna give it my full go. Everything I got, right? And with the knowledge that I'm in a community with other artists, and that's what I love about filmmaking and television and acting is that then, and they're going to add their juice to it, like their magnetism, their light, and then it's going to get lifted to the next level, right? And if we do that, we all rise and fall to our highest and best, right? I mean, that's kind of the way I've always, you know, thought about it. And I learned that so much in filmmaking. And I I keep coming back in my mind to what you said earlier about being that child in your house with the family and all the stuff was going on and you were still seeking the thing that could like lift the tide. Yes. And the way I think when you grow up in households like that, where there's stuff going on and it's a little chaotic and you're an artistic temperament, you're trying to like change it, lift it, like give it your best to. Yeah. You're just saying that the reality that I am in doesn't have to dictate the reality that I'm in. You know what I mean? It's a funny way to say it, but because things were like fairly extreme in my case, you know, there was some realities that were tough realities. And so you kind of go like, okay. And it's not like you're making a fantasy fake world. You're just recognizing in literature, in eventually Mm -hmm. as you get older, travel and Mm -hmm. and everything that you see, you're like, that's one small thing. Yes, That's one small piece of reality. Reality can be all of this other stuff. And so before you're old enough to take a train somewhere, you have to find your ways. And that way might be through a beautiful piece of music or a beautiful book or a beautiful couplet of Shakespeare where you're like, what is that gorgeous thing? I don't even know what it means. It's so pretty. I don't understand. What is that? Like whatever it is that like gets your juices going in this other direction and kind of makes space for something more than the thing that you're just the bubble that you're in. Yes. This is a perfect segue to talk about the, something else I want to talk about, which is from scratch. You talk about episode 107, which is a big caregiving episode. It's a big episode about the big stuff of life. Yes. And I remember in my actual life, when we were in the throes of caregiving with Sato, I remember leaving the oncologist's office after having been given not great news. And I remember the drive on Wilshire Boulevard from Santa Monica. And we just thought we're going to take Wilshire all the way back to Silver Lake. And if you know LA, that is a long Long drive with a lot of stoplights, but I needed to traverse the city to sort of understand and process what we just heard and the news that we were taking home with us. And along that drive, the things that we saw along the way from Santa Monica into Beverly Hills, into West Hollywood. I saw so many iterations of life, right? People, I mean, and I'm not talking about socioeconomic class exclusively. I am talking about people at the bus stop to people listening to music in their car. And I remembered something a friend had told me once. She said, when you're in a moment and you see something, just remember, it's simply another way life is unfolding. 
And at any moment, life is unfolding in many, many different ways. And in a kind of way, the trick is to remember that and hold that in your mind's eye. So the reality that I have in my car right now, which is that my husband, I know now his cancer has advanced and we have to decide what to do. I'm driving through the city, but somebody else is sitting there bopping to their headset on a bench. Someone else is like picking up clothes, they're dry cleaning. Someone else is having a beautiful meal at a fancy restaurant in Beverly Hills. And all of these, no one has more or less priority over the other. They're just other ways life is happening. And I think that's what we do as artists is to remember that. I mean, because also as artists, you're sensitive to what is going on in the world, which is also sometimes really talk about traumatic, like it can be really rough and not just in obviously the ways things have gone in the last, you know, 10, whatever, wait, what year are we? I know (laughs) all the years, it feels like a million, a million years, but also just places where things have been not great for a long time around the globe. Like the things that you think that have just, you could really get trapped in that, what you can't fix, what you can't really help and feel this deep sorrow about that. But you have to sort of also then do that, what you're saying, which is do what you can about that. I also have a very big try and clean up your backyard. And if everybody cleaned up their own backyard, nobody'd have any work to do across the globe. We'd all be fine. So, you know, do what you can in your world, do what you, a little, if you can, if you can reach across wherever you can, in whatever way that you can do that. But yeah, recognizing that it's not just that hard stuff that's going on on any given day, even taking yourself out of it. Like in the globe, there's all that really hard stuff. And then somebody is making a perfect dinner somewhere. Someone is sitting down to a perfect meal. Someone is falling in love somewhere. You know what I mean? Someone is hearing Mozart for the first time and being like, well, this is great. Like, this is very cheerful. Like, I mean, all those things are happening all at once. And it's, and it can make you a little crazy in that. I just saw everything everywhere all at once. I tried to watch it and it was so much everywhere all at once that it kind of broke my brain. I loved it. And then I was like, I need to take this in small bit. I probably started on a day when you had a good night's sleep. Yeah. <laughs> sure you I was not there. I didn't have this, yeah. the bandwidth. I was like, I can't um, take everything all at once, but I know you and I share having been caregivers. So we have these yeah. things in common actor to writer, but we also have caregiving, which is why you in our writer's room were the perfect person to hand off episode 107 to. Because you have cared for your parents, you've cared Mm -hmm. for a dear friend. Mm -hmm. In that process, I think what I want to ask you is who or what lifted you Mm -hmm. through that time? Was it your writing? Was it a person? What? Because a lot of people listening who are going through that are seeking examples of others and how they were able to traverse that time. That's such an interesting question because that's really hard. Like the fact is when you're caregiving, I found that it took my care away from the stuff and people in my life that fed me. So those people I actually had less access to or less input from just as I needed them most, but there was no time. And in some cases, you're not feeding that relationship either. So you can't expect them to feed you in that moment. So it's really very tricky. I think what happened for me that mattered the most was things like trying to find one long weekend that you could look forward to where you didn't have to be responsible for a minute, right? So I remember there was one 
long weekend that, that was a getaway weekend that had been planned. And Carrie, my husband was very good about saying, we have to make this happen. You really need to make this happen. And on that weekend, I just remember feeling like I had helium in my system because the difference between what life was and that weekend was so different. And then I had this wonderful, I had a massage. I didn't even know he's like, and I, and I booked you a massage. I'm like, a massage, Wait, this is the greatest thing ever. And as I was having this massage, she was so, so I never met her before. And she was like, huh, you seem like a lot's going on. I'm like, oh, well, you know, I was being totally like I am on this. And she said, well, after this, I want you to go to the beach and I want you to go into the ocean and I want you to let everything go. Let whatever's worrying you, whatever's on your mind, whatever cares, whatever you have, I want you to let it go and just let the ocean hold it. And I just totally started crying my face off. And it was so great. She released my muscles. I cried. So I was like, huh, well, that was relieving. I guess, you know, you're always like, dee, 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 dee. you don't have time to cry. You don't have time to do those things. And then I went and swam in the ocean and I released all that stuff. And I was like, all of this did not take a lot of time. All of this in many ways didn't even take that much effort. I just had to cover a couple of days. I had to do mm -hmm. some stuff. It fed me for like months. Like it literally mm. was like, so trying to carve out anything you can carve out, having it to look forward to is very key for me. I was always like, I have this thing that I'm looking forward to. And then really taking it when you take it and just like letting that phone not be next to you and just allowing yourself a minute to be like, somebody else can carry this for a second. It's okay. Thank you for sharing that. There's so much wisdom in that. God bless the practitioner yeah, she was who, who laid hands on and also yes. gave you that suggestion. Talk about someone who lifted you in that moment. A hundred percent. Whoever you are out there in the world. Yes. But also to this notion, releasing and like giving yourself the grace to step away yeah, is very, very valuable. Who was the last person in your life that you would say you have lifted? Oh, yeah. I mean, I have an idea, but you know, I don't know. Cause you don't really know that you're lifting, that you're lifting people. Right. Like, mm -hmm. I don't actually know. <laughs> Sorry. Like when I think of it, I'm like, <laughs> I don't do. know. You, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Well, here's what I will say observationally on the outside. <laughs> I think the position you're in as executive producer, showrunner of a show that you're in, that you're doing now, I think there are a lot of people that you've lifted mm. to either the next level in their career by saying, yes, come on aboard, right? Come mm -hmm. on aboard, let's do this thing together. But I know personally for me, just being in your presence which is something we can never know when we're with people, like how they lift us. But you have lifted me a many a time. <laughs> and I don't know if I was the last person, but I'm a person that you have lifted. So thank you for that. Uh, but you know what? <laughs> Talking about set, I do think that's another thing. And definitely as creative people who will be listening to this or anybody, I mean, in any job you're in. I remember again, back to Carrie, he's a very strong kind of guy. He's really sweet and he's Canadian. He's cool. He's all that stuff, but he's a strong temperament. So his energy, all of our energy flows in a certain way and affects people and we don't always see it. So I remember seeing him when he was having a bad day one time on set and saying, you're really kind of a strong guy. Like, be careful of that because you will affect people in a way. I don't think you even intend to. And then I was like, Oh, note to self, make sure you do the same thing. And so I think we always have to be a little bit aware of that. And I felt like that was one thing that I felt 
whatever happens with this show. I hope people like it. We've tried to make something beautiful. It really is about the revolutionary power of female friendship. There's beautiful, deep stuff in there that I love. It's very physically gorgeous to look at, but it was a real, real slog, man. You know, we were out there and just trying to be positive and letting your positivity, like a problem comes your way. What's the solution? Just jump into the solution. Just like, don't waste time on the, who did this? What's the fix? What's the solve? The excuses don't matter. Let's just get into the solution. And then we're all just like moving in the right direction and we can keep the energy flowing. So whatever your work is and stuff, just being super aware, if you can be, I mean, everybody has days, but people don't realize their energy is much more powerful than they know. I mean, when you think about it yourself, about how other people affect you, just be like, oh, by the way, <laughs> you do the same thing. So, you know, water on a rock, show up, <laughs> go gently, you yes. know, just be groovy. water on a rock. What you're going to, you're going to make the grand Canyon. It just might take some time. It's going to take a minute. It's don't come at minute. it hard. Let's just talk a little bit about your beautiful, 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 extraordinary episode 107. And I want to know from you if there is a moment in that episode, if there's a scene that you remember writing or now that you've seen it that stays with you. And if so, why? Well, first, like I said, it was such an honor to be asked to write at all for this show, but especially that episode, it was like obviously very delicate, even when we were trying to break it, trying to be just gentle in the room and try to take away as much as we could in the room. Like we didn't spend a lot of time breaking it in the room because it was very clear in the book and it was very clear where we were headed in the show. We didn't have to just go beat by beat on the board in the same way that we normally would. In some ways that made me have a little more sort of autonomy over just sort of how it rolled. And again, it was clear, right? I think for me, it was trying to honor the specificity of this journey and what I understood to be the feeling when you're in that hospital and somebody's giving you impossible options and somebody's like a nurse is just having their day and talking about coffee. And you're like, but, 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 but don't you understand? This is like, it's, you know, that Bruegel painting the fall of Icarus. It's like when you're dealing with that kind of illness, every day is the fall of Icarus. You're falling in the sea and everybody else is having a sunny day and you're just trying to get by and you're like, well, how am I going to do this? Right? So I feel like all of that just trying to feel my way through. I never cared. Like, I promise you, I never cared about an outline or a script more than I did. I was so, so diligent. I, I, I may never work as hard on any script again, but I think the only time that I felt like, oh, was we didn't break the ending beat where Amy and Lino are basically saying their goodbyes and they're so exhausted and she falls asleep. It's raining. And so she wakes into the moment of, the love, the first big moment of like connection of him standing in the rain and waiting for her. So that wasn't in the break. And I remember feeling like that was the one moment that I was like, oh, this feels like the story. I always feel like that if you can see the end and the beginning and the beginning and the end and the end and the beginning of a story, then you really have something that's real and beautiful. And that moment I felt like, oh, if they like this and this stays and this holds, I feel like this will feel like to me, what this book gave you, which is all the sorrow of what was lost, but all the joy of what was found all at once. So that to me felt like if that can work and it does seeing it, I was so happy. It was so, it worked so beautifully and it felt so, it felt like, how do you get the feeling of everything in a moment in a really spare moment? And it felt like that did it, you know? Marguerite, thank you so much for that. 
Thank you. The end at the beginning, the beginning Mm -hmm. at the end. I mean, a part of writing memoir asked of me that I explore that because grief, death is the part of the, to make sense of is to delve into that existential, the duality of those things and how we could visualize that, how we could render it as storytellers on the screen so that it's not an intellectual exercise. It is simply a visceral experience to watch it and to know it. And it goes right, it pierces to the heart. And you gave us that. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. My final question for you today is, is there any part of having worked on this show or at any stage that you will take with you in your life, either professionally or personally? I can't just give you one. I've been really lucky. I've worked with great people and I've, I've loved a lot of a lot of what I've done. Sometimes it's been harder and learning and a little like, you know, trying to like muscle your way through it. And sometimes it's like easier and fun and goofy and whatever it might be, but nothing was more deep and fulfilling than being in that room. I raced to work in the morning. I loved going to that room. I could not have loved it more. And that group of people, I mean, to take that group of people in my heart for the rest of my life is, is huge to me. So to me, it's just that group of people. I, I take that and I take the experience of, of how, deep and beautiful collaborative work on something can be when everybody's open and themselves and willing. And just, you know, just thinking of our lunch times, it could get you by on a hard day. Listen, those from scratch <laughs> lunches. And when we talk about the room, everybody, I realize it's probably a little like to say, but we're talking about the writer's room. We're talking the about the room. time in the before time when <laughs> writers would come together in a physical room every day yes. and we would explore story and yeah. we basically conceive of all eight episodes and what happens moment to moment and building out characters. And that's what a writer's room is. And Marguerite, we sat opposite each other on that conference table. And I remember thinking, who is this woman? And I want to learn everything from you. So you have certainly, as I said before, lifted me and I will take that memory with me going forward. Thank you for, for just your heart, your grace, your work in the world, your steadfast, tenacious, under the radar, water on a stone <laughs> approach to living. It is infectious oh. and it is dynamic and it's humbling and it's inspiring. And that is oh. all of who you are. Thank you so much, Marjorie. This is beautiful. I love you too. I wish you a beautiful day and thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Very excited to be here. I hope this conversation will stay with you as long as it will stay with me, particularly how art can lift a child's life and how we can end up on a creative path we never expected, but also the role of female friendships as we build our careers. Lifted is developed, written, and produced by me and my one-woman producing team, Solia Cates. It is edited by Jamie Moss. Thank you for joining us. Stay tuned for our next inspiring episode. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. 
Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs>